Even at age eight, Manasseh would have understood the significance of this miracle. He was there in the city. He saw the armies. And then the next day, 185,000 of them are dead, and the Assyrians are fleeing back to their own country. And this was because his father had, his, had exhibited faith, had prayed to the Lord. And his prayer was that this action would make everyone understand that God alone, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. Manasseh saw all that. He saw this miracle. And so between Hezekiah's reforms, the miraculous deliverance from sickness, the miraculous deliverance from the Assyrians, Manasseh had a significant example of faithfulness to the Lord and his father. He was up close and personal with all these things. And what we find in the biblical record is that probably uh, that at age 12, he was probably made co-ruler uh, of the king of Judah with his father Hezekiah. And that would have lasted for about 10 years. You have to kind of do the math between the different uh, uh, chronologies of 2 Kings and, and Chronicles uh, in trying to piece that together. But it seems that there was a co-reign for about 10 years. And we don't know uh, much about this time. Uh, except that it was quite a prosperous time. This was after the Assyrian invasion. Uh, but we see it was a prosperous time. And 2 Chronicles 33, 29 says that God had given him very great possessions. But when Hezekiah dies in 687 BC, now Manasseh is left to himself. Now he is the sole ruler, the sole king of Judah. And despite... Hezekiah's mostly godly example, we find that Manasseh turns away from the Lord in a full-throated rebellion. And this begins his descent of depravity. And so let's take a look at this descent of depravity. The biblical authors all agree. Manasseh is the worst and most wicked king that ever ruled the kingdom of Judah. Right? He stands as the paradigm of wickedness. You can think of in our own day, right, as soon as we hear the name Adolf Hitler, our minds are filled with notions of just this uninhibited and this tortuous villainy, right? Hitler is sort of the great pariah of modern history. If you go back to Rome's history, you can think of names like Nero and Caligula, and, and even in their own day, their own people hated them because of their wickedness. Such was has a, a Manasseh. He threw off the shackles of his father's righteous reforms and godly example, and he descended step by step further into the depths of sin, into the depths of his own depravity. And so if you would turn to 2 Chronicles 33, 2 through 10, the passage that we read not too long ago. And we see the chronicler's description of his reign. Consider the evilness of each of these items that he lists. So in verse 2 he says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. 
he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land I appointed for your fathers, if only, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. You'll remember that uh, he judged those nations because of their wickedness, and now Israel is even more wicked than them. It doesn't bode well for Israel. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people but they paid no attention. This is the deep gorge that lies at the bottom of that slippery slope of sin. This is where sin wants to take you. Every sin is a step downward into these depths. And while it's true that, yes, Manasseh has perhaps gone further down that path than most of us have, his sins are not categorically different than our own. You just think of a seed. A seed is not different. It's not other than the tree. Given uh, time and opportunity, the seed will certainly become the tree. The tree is the truest expression of that little seed. And so be careful with what seeds you leave in your life. Do not think that your pet sins are harmless. Envious coveting is the seed of theft. Hateful bitterness is the seed of murder. The lustful glance is the seed of adultery. Given only time, an opportunity, they will produce a deadly bloom. And what we find is that Manasseh's sins had come to full bloom. Whatever reforms his father Hezekiah instituted, he tore down. Whatever was prohibited, he pursued. Whatever was holy, he defiled. Whatever was lovely, he destroyed. Whatever was true and noble, he despised. Whatever was good and right, he defamed. Whatever was of God, he hated. He worshiped every God but Yahweh. He put up altars and idols in the very temple of God, the place where God and his name, Yahweh, was to dwell forever. He took his sons. Scripture tells us that sons are a heritage from the Lord. He took his sons and he burned them to gain the favor of the demonic gods of the pagans. He pursued every form of witchcraft and sorcery so that he could hear from the gods. And when God sent prophets who actually spoke for God in order to turn him back from his sin, he mocked them, he spurned them, he killed them. Who is this man that would sin so? And apart from grace, given time and opportunity, it is you and it is me. 
This is that descent of depravity. And Manasseh continued his descent until he was about 61 years old. He had an entire life filled with egregious sin against God. And one might be tempted to think, surely there is no hope for such a man like this. If anyone deserves to be wiped off the face of the earth, it's this guy. We might say, Lord, judge the wicked so that your people may rejoice. But if you've noticed, God has a funny way of doing things. He has a way of receiving glory to himself. We know from Scripture that God is glorified in his judgment. We, we read of this in Revelation 16, 5-6, where the angels are praising God for his judgment against the wicked. They're crying out, they're praising God, they're singing, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. God is glorified in his judgment. And yet God is glorified in his grace. Isaiah 30, 18 reminds us, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. He is glorified in his grace and in his mercy. And God had his plans for this wicked Manasseh. Now, as a Davidic king, Manasseh would have been a participant of that Davidic covenant that God gave to David back there in 2 Samuel 7. And, and David was promised concerning his offspring this in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. God is faithful to his word. And so as a result of Manasseh's unbridled, his unrepentant sin... God brought upon him these stripes, these rods of men, and he would use Ashurbanipal, the next king of Assyria, to be his rod, to be his instrument of discipline for Manasseh. If you're still in 2 Chronicles 33, we find in verse 11 that therefore, after listing all of his sins in 1 through 10, therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks, and bound him with chains of bronze, and brought him to Babylon. Now this was something that the uh, kings of Assyria were known to do, uh, especially towards those that uh, they suspected of rebellion, um, of, of plotting against them. And we also know that this couldn't have happened until 648 BC because during this time Assyria didn't have this full uh, control over Babylon until that point. And so what that means then is that this is happening sometime in Manasseh's 60s. He's already lived a complete life of egregious sin, and now towards the end of his life, Manasseh is brought as a political prisoner to a dungeon in Babylon. And he's chained, and he has hooks in his nose. And we can be assured that the anticipated end for Manasseh would be gruesome. You know, the Assyrians kept really good records of everything that they did. And Ashurbanipal, this same king that brought Manasseh to Babylon, had kept records of the things that he did to those that plotted against him. 
And so he makes mention of, of uh, some cities in Egypt. And he says, uh, Tanis and all of the other towns which had associated with them to plot, they did not spare anybody among them. They hung their corpses from stakes, flayed their skins, and covered with them the wall of the towns. Those kings who had repeatedly schemed, they brought alive to me to Nineveh. And from all of them, I had only mercy upon Nico and granted him life. All the other kings that plotted against him were goners. We find that at other times, Ashurbanipal would take a rebellious king, he would put dog collars on them and then chain him to the city gate of Nineveh to stand guard with uh, the other real dogs and bears as a form of humiliation. So whatever treatment Manasseh was experiencing or was about to experience, you can be assured that it was loathsome. And here, Manasseh had hit rock bottom. There was no hope for him. He had forsaken God, and now he was reaping the consequences. He had despised God, now he was despised. He had defiled the holy places, now he was defiled. He had mocked and spurned God's prophets, and now he was mocked and spurned. He could do nothing in his own strengths. All other pursuits had failed him. The gods that he cried to were merely idols of wood and stone. He was in the depths. He was in the miry bog. Every other option had been exhausted. Nothing would avail. And yet, it was here, in these very circumstances, that he became teachable, that he became responsive to God. And sometimes God has to do that with us. He has to take us to the very end of ourselves before we're ready to listen. How much easier would it be to just listen to him the first time instead of going kicking and screaming? But we can be thankful to God that he will even bring discipline. And we see Manasseh's cry of distress in 2 Chronicles 33, 12-13. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of of the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now he got it. When he knew that nothing else could save, he cried out to the only living and true God, he humbled himself, he prayed, he pleaded for grace. And we, we don't have his prayer recorded for us. There is uh, an account uh, that finds its way into the Septuagint, the prayer of Manasseh. You can go and look that up. It's, it's, it's fun, it's interesting, uh, but, but it's not actually Manasseh's prayer. And so we don't have it recorded for us, but I do imagine it to be very much like Psalm 130, the passage that we read in our opening. Psalm 130, verses 1 to 6 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more 
than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. The Lord hears these sorts of prayers. You'll remember in Isaiah 62, or 66, excuse me, verse 2, that the Lord tells us whom he listens to. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Manasseh humbled himself, and the Lord looked upon him with mercy and grace. And somehow, in the Lord's sovereignty, against all odds, he brought Manasseh all the way back to Jerusalem, restored him to his kingdom. And unlike some who, you know, once they're delivered from an immediate uh, predicament, sometimes we're faced with the consequences of our sins, and, and we have a moment of, oh, Lord, save me from this, and then, you know, you're actually delivered from that predicament. If we're not sincere, what happens? Whew, that was a close one. Now I can get back to what I want to do. But Manasseh, he knew that the Lord was God. And we find that this faith was demonstrated in an entire life after this, lived in repentance until the day that he died. He had descended the steps of depravity all of his life, but now, after his cry of distress, he would ascend the stairs of grace. And so we can look at his ascent of grace. We find that Manasseh, once he returned to his king, he set about to undo all of his previous sins. We read in verses 14 through 16 of 2 Chronicles 33, Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of the Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. But this is where it gets good. Verse 15. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them where? Outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what repentance looks like. Manasseh cleaned house. Whatever he built up in rebellion, he tore down in repentance. He removed the idols that he had put in the temple. He dismounted, uh, dismantled the, the altars, and he took them out of the city. Right? They, were, they were utterly disposed of. No, no chance for return. They're gone. He cast them outside of the city. This is not halfway repentance. Right? This is gouging out the eye. This is cutting off the hand that causes you to sin. This is leaving no stone unturned in repentance. This is wholehearted repentance. And, and we know from Scripture that a life of repentance is not just casting off uh, the old sins, but what else is it? It's putting on of righteousness. Romans tells us to overcome evil with good. It tells us to uh, cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Ephesians tells us to put off the old mind, to be renewed in our minds, and then to put on what? The new man. Repentance involves both the negative and the positive, and Manasseh had both of these. He removed the idols, the pagan altars, but what else did he do? He restored 
the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. So he obeyed and he worshiped. And we don't know how long Manasseh was back in Jerusalem before he died in 642 BC. It could not have been more than six years, most likely significantly less. So what does that mean? Three, two, we don't know. But with the time that he did have, he spent it all in a life of repentance. He came to the Lord only near the very end of his life. But with that life that he had left, he lived it in loyalty to the Lord. For most of his life, Manasseh was the paradigm of wickedness. But now in his later life, he would become the paradigm of God's mercy and his grace. Truly, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Even Manasseh, the most wicked king that ever ruled Judah, was the recipient of God's grace and mercy because he humbled himself before God and pleaded for grace. I'll tell you what, if God can have mercy on Manasseh, he can have mercy on you and I. Your sins are great. My sins are great, yes, but his mercy is more. We find in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were really godly, no, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we find in Romans 10 that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, even wicked Manasseh, even wicked you and me. God desires to exalt himself by showing his mercy. So call upon him. He will not turn you away. Humble yourself before him. He will lift you up. Believe in him, and he will save you. And may the rest of our lives be lived in fierce devotion and loyalty to the Lord, removing every idol of the heart and living in obedience and worship to the one true God who made the heavens and the earth. Now, Manasseh's story doesn't end there. This would be a fantastic way to end the story. He has now been restored to his kingdom. He has received the Lord's mercy and grace. We would say, this man is saved. But there is an un fortunate reality that there are lingering consequences, that, the, that there are lingering effects of sin. We can receive God's grace and mercy, but still have to deal with the earthly consequences of our sins, right? God will receive you to himself. He'll spare you from his wrath. He'll, he'll receive you to himself. But when we sin, we still experience the results of sin. We still live in a broken world and we still live uh, in a world that has sin of it, it, sin in it, both out there and in here. We see in Manasseh at least three of these lingering effects of Manasseh's life of sin. Number one, even when Manasseh becomes the paradigm of grace and mercy, throughout Scripture we, are, uh, con- we, we have his sins as being consistently described as the final straw that broke the camel's back. It would be because of Manasseh's sins and the sins that he led Judah to participate in that God would bring judgment upon 
uh, Judah and Jerusalem in 586 by the Babylonians. Manasseh is saved, and the consequences of his sin are still there. Secondly, we see that Manasseh's sins led Judah to sin against God, right? His sins were not a private affair. He built up the altars. He built up the idols. And he said, come on, Judah, join in me in this. Well, he repented. Doesn't mean all of his friends did. Doesn't mean that everyone in Judah did. And we find out that it's definitely not the case, that this left a deep scar on on, uh, Judah. And then finally... Manasseh's life of sin encouraged his son Ammon to sin as well. And this is probably the hardest one. But notice in 2 Chronicles 33, 21-23, Ammon, right? He was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. Notice that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that who made? Manasseh his father had made and served to them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. And so even in repentance, even in grace and mercy, there are still lingering effects of of sin. But that shouldn't dissuade anyone from coming to the Lord. That shouldn't dissuade anyone uh, from pursuing the Lord. Rather, it should motivate us to flee to him all the sooner, more soon. Nothing is gained in continuing in our sins. Everything is gained in turning to the Lord and doing it as quickly as possible. And he will give us the grace that is needed to endure those consequences. His power is made perfect in weakness. We must continue to trust him all the way to the end. And in 642 BC, Manasseh's life came to an end. He was 67 years old. And what we find is that he was not honored with a burial among the tombs of the previous kings. Apparently, he, didn't, uh, he, he wasn't very well liked either by the pagans or by the saints because you can imagine he lived most of his life uh, as a pagan, uh, which probably thrilled the pagans, but uh, then the saints, not so much. And then he repented and got rid of all those things, so he probably uh, was not on the good side of them either anymore. So he was not honored with a burial among the tombs of the previous kings, but rather in a humble garden. Second Kings 21.18 tells us that Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. He may not have been honored among people, but by God's grace he was honorable in the sight of his heavenly father, who heard his plea for mercy and finally received him to himself. We started by observing that Old Testament lives were written down as examples for us, for our benefit and for our instruction. So what do you think? Was Manasseh's life instructive at all? I think it is. And so in conclusion, let me just simply highlight some, some of those points of instruction from the life of Manasseh. I think I've got, I guess I've got six here. The first one, a godly father in no way ensures a godly son. Right. Manasseh should have recognized the reality of his father's faith, the sincerity of his father's faith. He had, he had the full witness of his father, but instead Manasseh turned away completely from it. And so for those of us here, be warned. Right? The faith of your parents is not your faith. 
Consider the reality of it and make it your own. And yeah, they're going to sin because we're all still humans. That doesn't discredit the reality of the, the truth. Number two, sin is a harsh master. It will take you further down into the darkness than you ever wanted to go. And so simply consider the depravity of Manasseh and resolve by the help of the Spirit to root out even the seeds of sin. We don't want full bloom trees of sins. We want to cut them out right at the root, right at the seed. Thirdly, no, no matter how grave your sins right, or how long you've been in sin, the Lord will save you if you humble yourself before God and plead for his grace and mercy. Your sins are not beyond his mercy. Remember, if God had mercy on Manasseh, he'll have mercy on you if only you humble yourself before him. And I think this is a great encouragement for people who come to faith uh, later in life. Most of his life was in egregious sin. Remember that he was no younger than 61. And so if you've come to faith later in life, just like Manasseh, you can live a life of repentance, of faith from this point forward and live a life pleasing to the Lord. And in Manasseh, we see what a true life of repentance looks like. It's not half-hearted. It takes sin seriously. It puts sin to death. It takes those altars and those idols and puts them where? Outside of the city. No chance of return. And it turns to the Lord in total obedience and worship. Our sins may still have lingering effects, but we must press on to the Lord, trusting in his mercy all the more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of Manasseh. Thank you that it was written down to be an example for us. Lord, for some, may it be a warning. Don't go this way. Don't go this way into the depths of depravity. Don't go this way into sin. But Lord, we also see that in it we have an example of your mercy and your grace. Lord, that you save sinners, the foremost of sinners. You save people like us. So Lord, thank you. Lord, may we, from this point forward, live a life of obedience, of faith, and of repentance. May we remove the idols that are in our heart. May we give complete, total, loyal devotion to you, our Lord. And we pray that your spirit would help us do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.